0: Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. This week was a little bit of a uh, interesting week for the Kim family. Um, we we wrote our wills this week, and uh, that's always an interesting to kind of work uh, interesting thing to work through. We had uh, chatted with some of our friends, and they had, um, I, I think, they're baby is like not even one years old and they had written their wills out we're like oh yeah we need to do that too as uh micah's eight (laughs) we we're like for the past seven years we're like we should do this we should do this and anyway we finally got around to it it's always kind of an interesting thing thinking about um the end of life and making plans for um for unfortunate events but uh anyway yeah so it it made for lots of interesting discussions in our home um, I've been going through this uh, class um, uh, for, for, for my studies. Um, it's called, it's called uh, Contextual Theology. It's like taking the gospel and fitting it into different cultures, different times, and different settings. And it's really about how do you share your faith in relevant ways to those that are around you. And um, if you think about scripture, we're reading um, a text that was written over a 1,400-year span uh, thousands of years ago, and we are trying to apply it to our current context. And so, even as we are reading a text that is um, that is older than our context, we then have to recontextualize this truth to make it applicable in our lives. And so, um, I've been learning about these six different methods to approach scripture, and I thought I would share them with you um, just because I think it's an interesting exercise to work through, especially as you interact with different cultures and peoples um, in your own lives. Um, I thought this might be an interesting exercise, and so we're going to be talking about sharing your faith in six different ways. Um, I'm going to invite you to join me for prayer, and uh, we'll begin. Father God, I just want to thank you for uh, this church. I want to thank you for this time that we have to read your word, to connect with each other, and to connect with you. And as we uh, discuss this idea of understanding you in different uh, different cultures and different settings, and sharing you uh, in different uh, different cultures and different settings, I pray that um, we would really. Uh, be able to wrestle with these ideas and to become more effective as um, as as people who believe in you. And so, um, I pray these things in your name, Amen. All right. So, the first uh, method that we're going to be looking at or exploring is called the translational method or the translational the translational model. Excuse me. And uh, if you can just humor me and repeat translational model on three, one, two, three. Translational model. Wow. How exciting does that sound (laughs) gonna gonna be a practitioner of the translational model? I'll tell you what it means first before I get all excited about it and anyway (laughs) So here are a few key arguments about the translational model basically uh, Practitioners of this model believe that the essential message of Christianity is universal the essential method of Christianity is universal in other words at the core of the gospel, at the core of scripture, the core of the truth, it is so relevant and extends beyond time, culture, and context. And so if I could use uh, a corn as a metaphor, um, the gospel has a core being the kernel, which is surrounded by non-essential disposable context and culture. So practitioners of this model believe that God's truth is mainly propositional. In other words, God reveals himself mainly through truth and doctrines. So because this truth comes from God, it extends beyond culture and time. This truth is sacred and it cannot be changed. So some missionaries strip down the gospel to one basic idea. And if you think about Seventh-day Adventism, we strip... Scripture down to 28 ideas, and I don't know if that's really a simplification or not, but we have these 28 truths that we believe extend beyond time and culture and context. So the translational model acknowledges the importance of culture and context, but if there's ever a conflict between the values of culture and the values of the gospel, then the values of the gospel are preserved. And so, some of you who have interacted with Jinha and I over the past eight years um, of our time here in Melbourne would have been, would have had first, would have been first-hand recipients of this approach. Um, there are times where the policies of the church and the rules of our church, uh, we we are quite loyal to those things, and it becomes quite difficult to hold on to those truths as we. Interact with culture and lifestyle that is here in Melbourne and so there were many times early on where we were quite firm Where we were like this is the truth. These are the rules We have to follow them and it would have caused some tension and some of us would have had some interesting conversation as a result of adopting uh, that mindset So another key argument of the translational model is that while God's presence may be present in a non-Christian setting, in order for the Holy Spirit to actually do something, uh, the gospel message needs to be preached or shared. The final key argument of the translational model is that all cultures are connected in some way. So sure, there are unique behaviors and unique beliefs, Um, Within every culture, but it's still possible to find some rough connection between the different aspects of each culture. So then if the message, the core message of the gospel is universal, then the method, the way that we communicate the gospel is also universal. And so what you'll see in some churches is that they'll just say, this is the gospel, and this is how it's supposed to be preached. And uh, so an argument that exists in my world is just kind of like, how do you properly do evangelism? And some people will say, well, you've got to set up a tent and you preach for twenty nights and you go through all the topics of Scripture and then um, and then you call people to make a decision and to be baptized. And this the, the basics of that model has been repeated for the past maybe uh, over a 100 years uh, within our denomination. And so there are a lot of interesting conversations that happen around the idea of evangelism or outreach. So I wanted to share a biblical example of how the translational method or model is used. So in Acts chapter, oh, sorry. So just in quick summary, we're taking scripture, tradition, and the experience of the past, and we're bringing it into the experience of the present Uh, whether it's culture, social location, or social change. So if you have your scripture, or if you have your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, we're looking at page 891. We're starting in page 891. And this is a story of Paul preaching to the Athenians. And I'm just going to skip around in the story and narrate. If you want to read along, feel free to. So Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And so the story says here that Paul is waiting for his friends in Athens. And as he Kind of walks through the city. He sees all this idolatry. And it just kind of sparks this zeal in him. And he just starts kind of preaching to um, Epicureans and, philosoph- and Stoic philosophers. And as they kind of engage in conversation, they kind of say, Hey, Paul, you have this very interesting idea. We want you c- to come to the Areopagus, which is um, like the Hill of Aries, where the philosophers would come and discuss and uh, have dialogue and come share your teachings With us. And so if you go to verse 20, we pick up in the story, and Paul goes to the Areopagus and he begins preaching. So from verses 20 all the way to 22, 23, Paul says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. In verse 23, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown god. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. So here Paul walks around Athens, sees all this idolatry, sees this one sign that says, to the unknown God, and he takes an idea that is common in the culture of the Athenians, and then he basically preaches the sovereignty of God, judgment, and Christ. And so if you read through the rest of the story from verses 23 onward to verse 34, Paul basically starts preaching to them. And in my mind, if I'm sitting there listening and I am not a Christian or a believer this is kind of an awkward conversation where Paul says hey there's this God that you worship let me really tell you about him and then he just kind of preaches his own thing and what's interesting is at the end of the story once Paul finishes talking about judgment about resurrection and the sovereignty of God some people listen to him and say hey that actually makes sense and so they keep spending time with Paul and some of them become believers And so um, even in the church today, even in Christianity today, as this method is practiced, many people actually respond to it. If I were to take one example in the Adventist church, as I mentioned before, the Adventist church kind of strips down truth to 28 ideas. Within this denomination, people contextualize these 28 ideas in different ways. Uh, For example, the Sabbath. This is a very... I mixed the uh, slides around. This is a very important idea within Adventism. And in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 10, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant or your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So my question for you as you read this passage is, how do you live out this belief and how do you share it? Some people will read this passage and say, the Sabbath is sacred. So they don't work. They don't cause anyone else to work. No sports on the day, no secular talk, no secular activity. Others would look at the Sabbath and say, uh, it's not as important. So it's okay to integrate that which is secular and that which is sacred. So going out to eat, going to sports events, not such a big deal. And some people would look at the Sabbath and say, ah, it's actually not that important altogether and just disregard it completely. And so as you think about this translational model, as you talk, as you think about... Um, what is central? What is what is the most important thing as you interact with people in the community? What's the most important thing to you as you uh, experience God for yourself? What bits do you keep? What bits do you dispose of? So here's some critiques of the translational model. So out of the six models, there's one other one that takes Scripture um, seriously. And I guess it... I almost make it sound like you're not taking Scripture seriously if you can dispose of some bits of Scripture. But um, the idea here is that there are some things that are absolutely central to, to uh, belief and to faith. But this model actually takes Scripture seriously. Um, <clears throat> another good thing is that the practitioner of the translational model, they can accept the good in all cultures and all contexts while still committed to the transforming and challenging power of the gospel <clears throat> And also for the practitioner of the translational model um, It's not necessarily it's not necessary to hold a fundamentalist faith to every aspect of scripture um, As there are bits of church history that uh, we may not be proud of And for the person who adopts this, it's easy to say Well, that's actually not central to scripture We don't actually believe or practice that today And so that, that actually works as a benefit there are, there are also some weaknesses to the translational model, like how do you determine what is central and what is core? And if I were to go around in the room and ask everybody and in, in our discussion time, we're going to ask the question, what bits of scripture are important and central? What bits are not so important? Um, we're going to find a lot of different answers. And so determining what is essential becomes a challenge. Um, and so that's one, one um, negative aspect of the translational model. Another, another weakness is that the translational model actually, it, it genuinely or at its core believes that truth in God is propositional, or in other words, truth is just a set of ideas that have been passed down from generation to generation. And so what we find as we really experience life is that truth or the revelation of God's truth is more than just scriptural. Like as you interact with other people, as you interact with other cultures, you see God working in those places where they didn't have Scripture. So then how do you interact with those different cultures, with those different peoples, and how do you maintain a sense of balance? And so one weakness is that if we adopt the translational model, we're saying we have the truth, and this is it you should follow, as opposed to, hey, you might know something as well, and God might be working in your life in an experience that I don't personally have. so the next model that i want to look at is the anthropological model so if you can just humor me and say anthropological model one two three anthropological model okay so the anthropological model is quite different it's the exact opposite of the translational model in that uh, the translational model is saying we have scripture tradition in the past and we bring it into the context of the individual this is the opposite where we say God is already working in a people group in a setting in a time and what is it that God is doing that I can learn from so if there are some key ideas to this uh, to this model this model centers on the goodness of the person on the goodness of humanity basically it states that within every person Every society and social location in every culture, God shows his divine presence. And so theology, it's not just about relating an external propositional message or truth um, to a particular situation. It's really about listening to the situation that people are in and then reviewing what their experience is with the truth that I know and then discovering something new. So There's a New Testament passage in John chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. And the text says this, In the beginning was the Word, and that Word is a reference to Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And if I were to summarize this passage, um, John here is saying that God's truth is everywhere in everyone, and it exists outside of Scripture. Well, I, what what he's doing is he's being clever. He's saying the experience of man is Scripture. So the idea is if God is the creator, then that which he has created should bear testimony um, or reveal some truth about himself. So there's a gentleman by the name of, M.A.C. Warren, and he, um, he argued quite elo- eloquently uh, for a deep humility. And he's basically saying, um, we need to remember that God has not left himself without a witness in any nation at any time. When we approach the man of another faith than our own, it will be in the spirit of expectancy to find how God has been speaking to him and what new understandings of the grace and love of God we may ourselves discover in this encounter. Our first task in approaching another people, another culture, another religion, is to take off our shoes. For the place we are approaching is holy, else we may find ourselves treading on men's dreams, more serious still, we may forget that God was here before our arrival. And so the basic stance of the anthropological um, approach is that human nature and therefore the human context is good, holy, and valuable. Okay, so here are a few passages that kind of Give Oh, before I go in there, this is what the anthropological model looks like in summary. Um, So you would take the experience of the present and the personal, uh, personal experience, culture, social change, and social location, and bring it into our understanding of Scripture and tradition. So here are a few passages of Scripture. The first one is Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 to 14. So for those of you who have your World Changer Bibles, and we're looking at page... 14 we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 14 and we're going to see one example in scripture where the Christians come in contact with a people group and the practices and the lifestyle of the people group changes their own religion, their own practice, their own belief as a result of what God is already doing so Genesis chapter 17 verses 9 to 14 so this is A covenant or a promise that God makes with Abraham surrounding this practice called circumcision and I'm just gonna read this passage to you or I'll I'll narrate the passage to you so God comes to Abraham in verse 9 and he introduces this covenant he says this is the covenant this is a contractual agreement that I want to make with you and your descendants from now until uh, until the generations to come and if you look at verse 10 This is the covenant that you and your descendants after you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be sign of the covenant between you and me. And if you go down all the way to verse 13, um, God tells Abraham, this is an everlasting covenant. And when you take that word everlasting and put it to the word covenant, that is, this contract is forever from eternity past until... Eternity, future, right? This is not going to stop. And so, when you look at Judaism, circumcision is still practiced. Um, also, if you look at Islam, circumcision is a very normal part of their lives. It's a very important part of their their uh, belief and faith practice. So, here in Scripture, you have the um, you have the beginning of this practice. Now, if we go jump to Acts chapter fifteen, verses one to thirty one. Acts chapter 15 verses 1 to 31 what we see here is that Paul has been doing mission work in nations outside of Israel so he's going to what he calls the Gentiles and what he finds is that here are these large people groups who are responding to God's Word they want to uh, join the church they want to believe in Jesus but a part of the faith of their religion states that those people need to get circumcised now if we practice that within the church today, there'd be a lot fewer males that would be willing to join the Christian church because that's just like a, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and so here Paul is preaching the gospel and these Gentiles are saying, yeah, we want to join the church. And then the people who are already a part of the, uh, the church are saying, hey, great. There's one thing you need to do, by the way. And so they have this argument because what a, what a, a difficult way of integrating people into your faith community. So, the argument becomes so significant that there is a group of people that have to meet in Jerusalem and they call this the Jerusalem Council. It's made up of all the leaders in the church or all the prominent leaders in the church and they begin reading through scripture and arguing about the importance of circumcision. Mm -hmm. Now, as you look at the passage, if you go to um, verse... I just realized, I said, oh, I'll summarize the chapter, and I was about to summarize it too much. <laughs> so like, there's no point in looking at the passage. Okay, let's look at verse 19. So Paul argues, he says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so as the council listens to this idea, look, let's just do away with the idea of circumcision. They talk about it. They agree, hey, this is a good, this is a good thing. And they write up a letter and they distribute it to all the Gentile believers um, in, in that region. Now, what I want to highlight here is, as you read from Genesis to Revelation, there is never one instruction that comes from God where he says, that's okay, you don't have to do circumcision anymore. And for someone who is kind of like a Bible-believing, faithful follower, that's a really challenging, challenging statement. Because you're saying, here is something that God himself said, I want you to do forever. And then people say, this is just too difficult. It's just not something that we do. And then the church responds and says, okay, that would just, it just does not happen within our modern-day context. Whenever there's like this challenge that says, hey, this is contrary to Scripture, the argument is always follow Scripture. But in this particular context, the church leadership says, okay, we'll do away with the everlasting covenant. And if you read down to the end of the story, um." Uh, all the way down to verse 29 and 30. They repeat the instructions. They say, you are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals. So it's kind of like no medium rare stakes. And, then, and also abstain from sexual immorality. And you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. And then verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter, the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. And so they're like, whew, we're so thankful that the church changed. And then as a result, the church grows in the Gentile uh, regions. So the rules change. And circumcision is no longer prerequisite for being a Christian. And so it's interesting. Um, our, our, uh, our sister-in-law is a pediatrician, and you know we have two boys, and there was kind of that question of, all like is this is this a good thing or a bad thing should we do circumcision should we not do circumcision is it is this like a medically good idea and you know our sister-in-law was just saying hey you should you should do it it's still actually um, a a healthy thing Um, and it's practiced in the u.s but it was so difficult to find an obstetrician who would practice circumcision because we live in a culture and a context that generally doesn't practice that and so only within judaism and islam um, is this commonly practiced but Anyway, this is not really a common practice today. So the rules change. And what's interesting is that, um, you know, when you look at these rules that are communicated to um, the, the, the Gentile nation, Paul actually breaks the rules again, where um, people keep asking about this idea of uh, meat that's offered to idols um, and so, if you go to First Corinthians chapter eight, verses uh, chapter eight, and I'll just summarize this—you so don't have to turn there. First um, Corinthians chapter eight, Paul basically tells them, "Look, idols are not real. God is real. If you eat food that's offered to idols, it's not a big deal because idolatry is fake anyway. But if it bothers somebody, then don't do it." And so, what we see in the New Testament is there's this constant shift of rules because of how uh, the church interacts with different cultures. And I suppose the most important thing about this this idea is what this uh, cultural um, integration means, and what new teachings and ideas come as a result of this um, interaction with those who are not christian and so on one hand, you would say, "Oh well, this is a very pragmatic thing if you don 't circumcise." Um, If you don't circumcise people, then that's good. That makes sense. It makes pragmatic sense. But there was this truth that came out as a result of this practice being changed. So if you go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. Paul here is... Sending this letter and writing to the church in Galatia and there are both Jewish and non-jewish people there and there's this tension of Superiority like who is who has higher social standing? uh, men or women Jews or Gentiles slaves or free people and as a result of Paul's interaction with those who are non-christian uh, or, or non-Jewish, as Paul interacts with the Gentiles, and as he wrestles with these ideas of circumcision versus non-circumcision, he has this—he um, has these few lines that are incredibly potent with with uh, truth. So, Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-six to twenty-eight, and Paul writes to this this these uh, people or to this church in Galatia, and he writes: So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so in this church where there's so many different groups of people, there's kind of like— there's you see that there's this power struggle within those different demographics. And Paul's saying, hey, if you really adopt Christ and the message of the gospel in your life, it equalizes the playing field. In other words, it's not about uh, male or female hierarchy. It's not about being slavery. It's not about being circumcised or non-circumcised. In Christ Jesus, because he dies for humanity, that's what um, informs the value of humanity. It is found in Christ Jesus, not in the arbitrary way that you were born, not in the color of your skin, not in how uh, how wealthy or not wealthy you are. The, the the measure of the value of humanity is found in Christ. And so what we find here is as Paul wrestles with this idea of circumcision versus non-circumcision, he comes to the realization that in Christ, that actually doesn't matter. And so this... this um, This exposure to a different people group illuminates Paul's own understanding of the gospel. And I suppose this is what we're supposed to, this is what we can encounter as well as we interact with other people groups. So there are a couple critiques. There's some strong points of the anthropological model. There's some weak points as well. The strong points is that it takes people and their culture seriously. Uh, This model can lead people to see Christianity in a fresh light and the third positive aspect is that the anthropological model it starts where people are it starts with people's real questions their interests their struggles there's some negatives as well I think a major danger of the anthropological model is that um, it easily falls prey to cultural uh, romanticism and um, there's this writer um, ale word shorter and she points out that acculturation or the encounter of one culture with another is happening all the time and even despite efforts of some societies to seal a culture off no matter what cultures are still changing the reality is that we're a global community we're an interdependent community and it's just impossible to seal off all of our cultural groups neat and tidy um, neat and tidy groups if you look out in the room today um, there are people from so many different cultures, and we are constantly learning from each other, and we are changing because we are interacting with one another. You know, in our church, we have people from Zimbabwe, Kenya, Malaysia, Australia, and that's just to name a few. And we are consciously and subconsciously adopting each other's ways. You know, there, there are times where Jinha and I go back to America, and as soon as we step off the plane, we're like, man, these people are so American. <laughs> like, I just, just in the first hey, how's it going? (laughs) You're like, whoa, (laughs) it's so American. Change happens all the time. Cultures are changing, um, and they change because of all sorts of factors. And the reality is that um, even if Christianity doesn't exist, culture shifts and changes. So I think, um, yeah, another, I I guess, guess in line with thinking of... um, Cultural romanticism and trying to isolate culture sometimes resisting change uh, leads to us missing out on something so the final critique of this model is that um, Actually practicing the anthropological model sometimes is easier said than done if you're trying to preserve culture um, it's it's just It's impossible to to its nth degree practice so uh, the reality is not only the present experience culture and context are important and bring value um, but the experience of the past scripture and tradition also brings value and so I think we always bring that which works with us into a cultural context so simply to discover the gospel emerging from a particular situation um, which is ideal in the anthropological model um, it's, it's challenging because how do you communicate the gospel without using the language and the traditions and the truth of the gospel? How do you bring that into a culture and actually um, create some meaning without, um, basically I'm saying no matter what, you're going to bring change as you bring the gospel into that context. And so actually practicing this uh, creates some challenge. So applying this church in the Australian, uh, Applying this concept in the Australian um, in the Australian context, uh, something that uh, I found myself asking was, what does it mean to actually? How do I explore uh, the culture that is within Melbourne? How do I explore the culture that is uh, the city? Uh, what does it mean to find the truth here? How do I how do I uh, bring? How do I discover? the truth that's here, along with the truth that I already know, to really experience and explore this idea and this model. And so I close today by presenting that question to you. And um, as we discuss these things in our our discussion, um, I look forward to hearing your thoughts. So why don't we close a prayer and we'll end for today. Father God, as we've explored these two ideas, these two models, uh, whether it's the translational model or the anthropological model, I pray that as we explore with as as we wrestle with with scripture, as we explore how we can apply these things in our lives, as we interact with people around us, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Um, how do we become more effective in in how we how we share who you are with those who are around us? So we thank you for hearing our prayers. I ask these things in your name. Amen. As usual. We have the Next Steps Connect card for those of you who want to get um, more connected to our church with the various different ministries. If you have any questions or prayer requests or you'd like a visit from either Jinha or myself, feel free to scan the QR code and um, and we'll follow up with you afterwards. And of course, you can follow us um, on social media, whether it's through Facebook or Instagram, or uh, you can contact us through email or check out the website as well. We've got some nibbles in the back, and we've got some discussion questions also at the tables, and so we invite you to join us for the next segment of church.